This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Hello, everyone, and thanks very much for joining us. My name's Matthew Barnard, and I'm a director with Control Risks. And we're here today to talk about Pakistan and China, and specifically the increasingly important political, security, and business ties between Islamabad and Beijing. Pakistan is expected to hold general elections later this year, but the country is also grappling with serious economic challenges and mounting security threats. As a result, Pakistan has been drawing on key strategic bilateral relationships, specifically China, which is also envisioning a greater role for itself in the region. Joining me today to discuss this further is Arsla Javed, who's our senior Pakistan analyst based in Dubai, and Chris Torrens, who's a partner with our China business based in Beijing. So Arsla, let me start with you, please. What should we be expecting to see in Pakistan over the coming year, especially with elections approaching? Well, thank you, Matt, for inviting me to this podcast. And as you said, this is election year in Pakistan. And usually elections in Pakistan are associated with a heightened level of turbulence in the political landscape. You see your civil unrest, you see your street protests and all of that. But this year, the level of disruption is is a little higher than usual. And just in terms of a bit of a catch up, in April last year, Imran Khan's government was ousted from power through a no-confidence motion that then brought in place a fragile coalition of political parties that have previously been staunch rivals. Since then, Imran Khan has amassed significant public support by holding multiple street rallies. He has accused the military leadership and the government for conspiring against him to remove him from power. And what this has done is create an incredibly volatile and polarized political landscape. So where we stand today, it is currently unclear whether Pakistan will actually see general elections in October as originally scheduled. Provincial elections in the province of Punjab and the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa assemblies is expected to take place in April. That is roughly 90 days since both assemblies were dissolved in January. Now, on the one hand, you have a government that is keen to buy more time, perhaps in attempts to strengthen its vote bank by holding elections in October. The government has stated that the country simply does not have the public funds to hold staggered elections. On the other hand, you have an opposition led by Imran Khan that has been calling for early elections in the hopes to translate his street popularity to success at the ballot box. At the same time, we're also beginning to see serious fractures within the ruling coalition where disagreements between major political parties around the election timeline and what is constitutionally mandated are picking up steam. And let's remember that all of these developments are happening in a country where the most influential institution remains the military. Despite intensifying political volatility, heightened political polarization, um, we understand that the military is unlikely to initiate a coup, even though the country has a long history of military coups. However, what remains clear, and perhaps now more than ever, is that any party seeking to secure federal power in Pakistan will require the implicit nod of approval from the military. 
Okay, thank you, Arsula. So it seems like Pakistan is navigating some serious political turbulence. So how does this political volatility impact on the economy? Yes, absolutely. The ongoing political uncertainty has already had a devastating impact on the economy. Now, of course, it's not just political uncertainty in Pakistan. We, of course, have soaring inflation. There's a global rise in fuel prices, economic mismanagement. All of these factors are to blame itself. In addition to that, we have a government which has had a short tenure in power and has been very clearly hesitant and unwilling to initiate strict monetary policies. For instance, the local currency, the rupee in Pakistan has been witnessing a sustained depreciation. It hit a record low after the government removed exchange controls that were artificially supporting the rupee. Now, measures such as these have actually been very critical in reviving stalled negotiations with the IMF. The IMF has had a $7 billion financial assistance program for Pakistan. Pakistan has been in negotiations, many of which have been delayed, to secure the release of a $1.2 billion tranche. That is very important for Pakistan. Pakistan desperately needs this money. Why? Because Pakistan's foreign exchange reserves have fallen below the $3 billion mark. That is not enough to secure even one month of imports. In addition to other things, this will also impact the manufacturing sector, further deepening unemployment. The inflow of remittances, the bulk of which come from Gulf countries, has also dramatically declined. And let's not forget the devastating floods of last year, which have caused roughly about $30 billion of damage. Many of Pakistan's key crops that form the basis of its export profile have also been destroyed. This is going to have a serious impact on the country's export bill in the short to medium run. And on top of all of this, Pakistan also faces an acute energy crisis. Just weeks ago, the national grid broke down, plunging a country of 220 million people into days without electricity and power. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the revival of the IMF program. And while it is true, that will pave the path for other multilateral lenders and bilateral partners to disburse financial assistance for Pakistan. This will certainly help to reduce the imminent risk of default, but it's simply not a magic pill. Pakistan's economic challenges are unfortunately far from over, and Islamabad will have to put in strict, immediate, and sustained monetary and fiscal policies if it hopes to usher in some level of stability in its economic landscape. Thank you, Asla. So mounting political challenges, mounting economic challenges facing Pakistan over the coming months. Now, I wonder what all that means for the security situation in the country. Is there any room for optimism on that front? Or do we expect similar challenges in the security situation over the coming months? Well, the future seems a little bleak, doesn't it? Um, unfortunately for Pakistan, even on the security standpoint, uh, Pakistan has seen ever since the Taliban takeover um, of Afghanistan in 2021, Pakistan has seen a gradual increase in militancy along the Pak-Afghan border. The banned militant group, the Tehrik-e Taliban Pakistan, for instance, has uh, regrouped. It has enhanced operation capabilities. It has increased recruitment. 
in the former tribal areas. We have been seeing newer alliances between militant and sectarian groups that have been formed. Older alliances have been revived. And all of that has really led to a noticeable uptick in militant presence and activity. This is not just in the tribal areas, though. This is also in parts of Balochistan province, the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. In November, uh, just last year, the ceasefire between the government and the TTP expired. Since then, we've also seen a surge in joint operations by militant and separatist groups. And this is not just in Pakistan's rural areas. Unfortunately, just last week, we saw a bomb attack in Balochistan's provincial capital of Quetta. In December, police forces thwarted what could have been a large suicide attack in the capital of Islamabad. Urban centers of Karachi, centers like Peshawar have also seen a rise in militant attacks. And of course, keeping in mind that the TTP is not the only perpetrator. Pakistan, of course, has a number of smaller sectarian groups. It has separatist groups that are active in the country. The Islamic State in Khorasan also harbors significant intent to raise its profile. It has also conducted attacks across the country as well. But what does that actually mean for Pakistan broadly? While these attacks are alarming, they don't seamlessly translate into an overall deterioration of Pakistan's security environment. We simply haven't really seen the same level of terrorism and militancy that Pakistan experienced between, say, 2007 to 2012. This is essentially because the military and the paramilitary forces remain capable and committed to safeguarding the counterterrorism gains they have been making from operations since 2014. Having said that, there are massive gaps that exist in intelligence gathering and sharing. There is a lack of coordination between provincial and federal level law enforcement agencies. But nonetheless, the state will continue with its kinetic operations. Many of these will remain reactive. They may not be as preventive as one would hope, but they are likely to be successful in preventing a significant spillover of violence across the country that would then be marked by frequent large-scale militant activity. So it's not all entirely bleak. The security landscape in Pakistan still remains broadly stable. Thanks very much, Asla. So let's link this to Pakistan-China relations now. Uh, So you mentioned that there's been an uptick uh, in militant attacks across Pakistan. Now, I understand there's also been some targeting of specific allies of Pakistan, too, in those militant attacks. Now, we understand that China and Pakistan have a close relationship. How does this militant activity and these security challenges impact on Chinese business interests in Pakistan? Yes, absolutely. That's right. I mean, when we look at the Pakistan-China relationship, Pakistan really looks at China as its all-weather friend, right? And the relationship is highly strategic in nature. That is most prominently due to the $62 billion China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is the mega infrastructure project part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And even $62 billion is a bit of a conservative estimate. The actual number is far greater. And for Pakistan, this investment is absolutely 
absolutely critical. And there's pressure on the military to safeguard it. Now, the military itself has adopted a bit of a proactive and aggressive posture. The military has formed multiple CPEC bodies to streamline administrative processes, ensure bureaucratic red tape is minimized specifically for Chinese investors, or that adequate security is provided along strategic routes linked to the CPEC projects. Having said that, we have seen attacks against Chinese personnel in Balochistan, where numerous CPEC projects are located. We've also seen some high-profile attacks against Chinese targets in Karachi, where groups like the Baloch Liberation Army maintain an active presence. Groups like the BLA, for instance, remain staunch opponents of foreign investors who they perceive essentially as exploiting the province's natural resources. For example, in April 2021, the TTP claimed responsibility for a suicide attack in a parking lot of a hotel in Quetta, where the Chinese ambassador was residing at the time. He, of course, escaped unharmed. In July 2021, a bomb blast in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa targeted a passenger bus that killed nine Chinese nationals near the Dasu Dam. We've also seen numerous incidents in Karachi targeting Chinese personnel. So as a result, the Pakistan military and paramilitary forces have been on high alert. They will continue to provide even more extensive security to ensure that strategic assets under the CPEC umbrella remain safeguarded. Simply put, Matt, Pakistan cannot afford to let security provisions slip and attacks against Chinese businesses increase. Now, A large-scale militant attack against Chinese personnel remains unlikely. However, one-off attacks simply cannot be ruled out. However, Chinese personnel and assets will remain heavily guarded and they will continue to receive increased security, especially as the broader security threat landscape becomes more complex in the coming months. Thank you very much, Asla. Now, Chris, let me please get the Chinese perspective on all of this from you, if I may. How do Chinese companies and our Chinese clients look at Pakistan? And what kind of concerns are you hearing from them at the moment? Thanks, Matt. Yeah, I mean, we work with a a range of Chinese clients, Chinese multinationals across various sectors, but principally energy, infrastructure, technology. And I think it's safe to say certainly based on our interactions and the support we've given these clients, that these Chinese clients have historically felt pretty secure operating in Pakistan because of the scale of Chinese investment coming through CPEC, as Asla said, pretty large projects that are being run out in Pakistan. And of course, that's all part of the broader Belt and Road Initiative, which I can talk about in a minute. But clearly, because CPEC is so important to Pakistan, there's just been a sense that Of course, the Pakistan government and the military are going to make sure that Chinese clients are secure. It's an absolute priority for them. And our Chinese clients have actually been much more worried about security threats to their operations in other parts of the world, Uh, you know, in the Middle East, Iraq, Libya, or, or in Africa, countries such as Sudan and Nigeria, where they perceive the risks or have perceived the risks rather to be greater. However, you only have to listen to some of the incidents that Arsla mentioned to appreciate that now Chinese clients are increasingly concerned about the ability of the Pakistan government and the military to protect their people uh, and their assets on the ground. And their concern is based on this growing number of incidents, which would suggest militant activity that's specifically targeting Chinese personnel and assets. And this would be hugely significant 
because it would really mark the first time that there was organized and sustained activity specifically against Chinese companies anywhere in the world, to be honest, across all those emerging markets. Now, we've seen Chinese personnel obviously being targets for petty crime and muggings and robberies and things like that in emerging markets, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. But this would be the first time that there was a more coordinated and sustained initiative by specific groups targeting Chinese clients. So naturally, we're getting asked more and more to provide more information and analysis around the motives behind these attacks, and crucially, whether they're going to continue and whether they will increase in frequency and scale in deadliness. And as that Chinese client concern is increasing, we're also seeing pressure by the Chinese government on the Pakistan government and on the security forces to provide greater protection as well. Now, I think another factor that is of concern to Chinese clients and to the Beijing government is actually the change in government from Imran Khan to Shehbaz Sharif last April. Not because it's necessarily a seismic change in politics, and I'll leave Arsla to talk, talk more about that, but just because any change in uh, administration can disrupt business continuity. Actually, I think Beijing was probably reassured by Prime Minister Sharif's visit to China in November 2022. He certainly is appears to be more welcoming towards CPEC and CPEC projects than Imran Khan was. So maybe it's a development, a positive development for them on the political side, but it is another factor that they're thinking about, and that does affect their perspective. As things are at the moment, I think Chinese companies are less inclined to push through new projects and new investments under CPEC if they feel that their people are not going to be protected. And I think that's perfectly understandable. And just a reminder of what's at stake as well, as Asla said, it's it's at least $62 billion within this CPEC initiative. We've had 28 projects already completed and implemented over the last seven years. That's about $19 billion. So there's a lot of money still on the table, which Pakistan obviously wants to get into the country. Something like $35 billion worth of ongoing and planned projects. So that's the Karachi Circular Railway, which I think is $10 billion. And then there are various other energy projects which add up to $18 or $19 billion. So there's a lot at stake here for Pakistan. And just one more point on the perspectives that we're getting from our Chinese clients. A number of our clients have actually asked us whether these attacks reflect a broader antipathy or even hostility towards Chinese investment generally in Pakistan. And clearly, we don't believe that is the case. We believe very clearly it's only radical elements in parts of the country, as Asla said, probably Baluchistan and Karachi, which are driving these attacks and they don't enjoy popular support. Most people, all the political parties welcome this Chinese investment and they realize how much the country needs it. So I hope that gives you a sense of kind of what our Chinese clients are thinking and and what their concerns are. Yes, thank you, Chris. Really interesting to get the perspective of of Chinese companies and our Chinese clients and how they're looking at Pakistan. But I suppose to to dial it back for a moment and, and to put that into context, more broadly, why is Pakistan important to China? Yeah, from a more sort of macro perspective, I think it's important to remember that security is hugely important for China within the region. So Pakistan and China have been cooperating on a military basis for several years. And that's partly because obviously extremism and political instability in neighboring Afghanistan and potentially in Pakistan can be a threat to China. And you have to remember China's never really had 
great relationships with its borders, uh, bordering with its neighbors historically. The last thing they want in a neighboring country is to have an opportunity for Western or U.S. Uh, peacekeepers, military to start operating there. They just don't want U.S. military on their borders. But then the other factor driving the military cooperation has been Pakistan's support for preventing further radicalization and extremism in northwestern China, in, in Xinjiang, and Pakistan's support for Chinese government initiatives in that region as well. So that's very important for China to know that Pakistan can help hopefully bring stability to neighboring countries and prevent a spillover of instability into the country, but also help with driving domestic security as well. I think another factor is foreign policy. As I said, China's historical relationships with its neighbors haven't always been harmonious. And the Pakistan-China relationship enables Beijing to apply further pressure to its old adversary, India. Um, they've had a number of border wars, more recently border clashes, ongoing border tensions. And of course, we've recently seen economic initiatives between the US and India, which will have upset Beijing. So this is a chance for China to keep up the pressure on, on India from a foreign policy perspective. Then, of course, we have CPEC and the Belt and Road Initiative. CPEC is the earliest and the biggest example of the Belt and Road Initiative, which itself is China's very ambitious projection of soft power globally. And an initiative which one could argue has failed to gain the kind of global momentum that Beijing would have liked, given that it has the personal approval of the very highest levels of leadership in Beijing. So Pakistan is a very important part of CPEC and more broadly, BRI. And then there are other factors such as uh, CPEC giving China access to the Indian Ocean or, or rather the Arabian Sea, I suppose, but it brings strategic and economic benefit. And then also, of course, China's economic commitment to Pakistan. It's not just in, in the form of CPEC. They've also made significant loans to Pakistan as well, provided financial support through lending to help minimize sovereign risk. And I suppose all these things put together reflect a grander ambition that China has, a vision that China has as part of BRI, and that is that its CPEC initiative and the economic support that it's giving to Pakistan is, is all supposed to bring stability to the country and to change international perceptions of the country as a failing state. And that, of course, is so that China can show that there is an advantage to partnering with it and it wants to show the positive influence that it can have as an emerging global superpower on its allies, not only in the region, in its own backyard, but obviously globally as well. So there's a much bigger picture here at stake. Pakistan is immensely important to China, not just in terms of regional security and stability and that economic development, but also in helping China develop and cement its place as an emerging global superpower. Thank you very much, Chris. Yes, as, as you said, clearly a lot at stake for both countries and also a testing time for the bilateral relationship, clearly. On that note, Asla, let me please ask you to have the last word on this. How do you see the outlook for the Pakistan-China relationship over the coming years? 
Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to echo a little bit of what uh, Chris mentioned earlier, but I suppose that is somewhat indicative of how aligned uh, Pakistan is with China present day. Pakistan's geolocation, of course, its large population makes it a very strong partner for China and the region, right? And Pakistan very much defines its relationship with China as an all-weather friendship, uh, one that is stronger than steel and sweeter than honey. And this is not just about CPEC. one thing that Chris mentioned earlier about Shahbaz Sharif's visit to China being seen as a bit more of a reassurance. This is absolutely true because in 2015, when CPEC was first launched, it was launched by Shahbaz Sharif's brother, Nawaz Sharif, who had federal power at the time. The Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz uh, government was in place as it is today. But having said that, CPEC has political buy-in from all political parties across the spectrum. So the civil and military leadership is very much on the same page when it comes to CPEC. And beyond that, Pakistan has also relied on China for diplomatic support. We've seen this during ongoing reviews of Pakistan's anti-money laundering, counterterrorism financing mechanisms by the Financial Action Task Force. Pakistan has always turned to China for support. Pakistan has also turned to China when it's been trying to rally support on international forums for its criticism of India's actions over Kashmir, which remains a flashpoint. So add to this the fact that over the coming years, Pakistan's foreign relations will be heavily driven by its economic reality. Pakistan's biggest bilateral creditor is, of course, China. China holds roughly $30 billion of Pakistan's total debt. Now, while Beijing has dispelled the notion of creating a debt trap for emerging markets, countries like Pakistan will continue to increasingly turn to traditional allies like China for financial support, for diplomatic support, and especially over the coming years, as we see CPEC projects reaching completion. The Pak-China relationship is likely to strengthen, but this will be driven primarily by economic gains. Thank you, Asla. And thank you, Chris. Thanks to both of you. Fascinating speaking to you both. And thank you for sharing your insights. And thank you, everyone else, for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.